Olivia, will you read the scripture for us this morning? After his baptism, as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For forty days and forty nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the high point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you. And they will hold you up with their hands so they, you won't hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. This is the word of God. Thank you, Olivia. It's from Matthew chapter 3 and a little bit of 4. And, um, you know, uh, my wife and I, we were, uh, before we were married here in Eugene, we were just college age. We were going to Lane, and then we went to U of O. And back in those days, Christmas was always my favorite time of the year, not just because, you know, we love getting presents at Christmas, but also because in those days, there was always a Lord of the Rings movie that was coming out at Christmas time. And those were some of my favorite years because, I mean, we're just so looking forward to those, to the next one and the next one. And they always leave it off at a cliffhanger and you're just like, oh, I can't wait to see it. And uh, in those days, you know, we, we were young, we didn't have kids. And so we would wait in line and catch the, the midnight showing. Um, right when it opened up, opening night, and that Valley River Center, I don't know if you know, there's this like this outside area where you can kind of go in the back way, and that place every year was just packed. I mean, everybody's lining up, and everybody dressed up as elves and Gandalf, and you know, I mean, people are late, like, it's the kind of, we were the kind of, we were standing next to people who have done the work of like actually learning Elvish, you know, and they can actually like speak this like fake language that Tolkien made up. I mean, just so nerdy, you know, and we were there, and I mean, and those are long movies, right? And so we'd be there at the midnight showing. And so we're like literally out till four in the morning. And those were, you know, such, such good years. And then later on, we had children. <laughs> we had kids. And the time of our lives where we're like catching midnight showings was over. Right? Over. We're just so tired. So now what's funny is we're in a season of life. We have four kids and we're just exhausted all the time. And so at nighttime, we send the kids to bed and we, uh, we start to watch a show and either one of us, either Christy and I, will fall asleep within 15 minutes of whatever we're doing. And so we are in this uh, schedule now in life where if we're going to watch a show, we usually watch a show in like four or five installments. Um, just little, little, and then, you know, you fall asleep and somebody else fell asleep. So you have to rewatch parts that you already watched. And so, um, once a year, usually Christy and I, we, uh, we try to go back and watch all the Lord of the Rings movies and it takes us about six months to get through, <laughs> to get through them because we watch them in like 15 minute increments, you know, it's the worst. It's just the worst. We're just old now, you know, we just can't, we can't hang with it. 
but what's funny is when you watch something in 15-minute chunks, I mean, you, you, uh, you know, we're familiar with the story now, so we kind of get the big picture. But if you were going to watch Lord of the Rings for the first time in 15-minute chunks and sometimes like, you know, three-night breaks in between, I mean, you would, you would like lose the scope and lose sort of the sense of the big picture. And I think what we often do as, as Christ followers, if you're, you know, this room is filled with a lot of people who are Christians. Uh, there's a lot of people, there's, there's some people here who you don't consider yourself a Christian yet. You're still investigating. Listen, you are in the right place. We're so glad you're here, especially in this sermon series that we're starting because I think what a lot of people do is they just get little pieces of the story and don't get the, the big story. You might be somebody who, you know, it's like you, you get Christmas and Easter, but, you know, everything else, it's like, man, what's the rest of the story? But even for us Christians, maybe you've been in church your whole life, or even if you've got a rhythm of reading the scripture for yourself, what's funny is sometimes we just take little, little chunks of the scripture and we just kind of forget there's this big story that's going on. Um, there's a group of people right now in our church who are reading through the whole Bible in 90 days, which is a really, really cool really, really cool thing and actually a really refreshing way to try to read the scriptures because you're just reading huge sections at a time and you can really just get a sense of the scope and the breadth of this, of this story that we're in. And, uh, and so we're, as a church, it's just leading us up to Easter. We're kind of just taking a step back. We're trying to get the big, big picture because here's our conviction is that we really feel like the, the Christian story is the most compelling story that there is. And that Jesus was the most compelling person that there is, which always just makes me wonder why more people don't find Christianity compelling. If this is the most compelling story that there is, and if Jesus is the most compelling person that there ever is, that there ever was, then it just makes me wonder sometimes how come there's a lot of people that don't find the Christian story, uh, Christianity compelling. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think I'm convinced that there's just a lot of people who have, they don't find Christianity compelling because they haven't met any compelling Christians or they haven't encountered a compelling church or they just haven't heard how compelling this story actually, actually is. So we're taking these weeks to kind of just look at this story. Um, so if you haven't heard just the, the big story, we're, I mean, you know, we were already three weeks in, go back on the podcast, just listen to, we're just taking these big themes, but I'm so glad you're here. We're just trying to help you understand how amazing and compelling this story is. But for those of you who are her, have heard the story before, I've been saying the last, this the last couple weeks, here's my challenge to you. If you, you feel like, okay, I've heard the story, I've heard the story, I want you to ask a different question, okay? So the different question is, instead of, I don't want you to ask, do I know this? I don't want you to ask, do I know this? I want you to ask, can I share this? There's just a different twist. You might feel like you know the story. That's great. I'm glad you know it. Let's just dig deeper this morning. But let me, t let me just push you. Let me challenge you. It's one thing to know it. And it's one thing to, to know it in a way where you feel like that you can share it. And so that's what I'm hoping we can do. If you know the story, then I'm pushing you. I'm glad you know the story, but can you share the story? Is it so kind of in you that if somebody has questions or if you encounter somebody and they're, they, you know, they're like, hey, man, you're a Christian, right? That you'd be able to say, hey, let me take you out for drinks and let's just talk about it. And I'd love to share with you some of the, the, the big Christian story. So um, that's what we're doing um, and uh, glad we're on this on the Glad we're doing this together. Um, hey, with every story, you can't understand the big story unless you understand the beginning. Because every story has a beginning. And if you miss the beginning, have you ever showed up to a movie late um, you, and you didn't know, like, why did that person kill that? So you're like, what? And you're just out of the loop. You need to know the story in order to, the beginning of the story to understand the big story. So I want to take you to the very beginning of the story. And I just want us to, I want to tell the story in a way that maybe you've never heard it before. 
Um, but I want to take you to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because packed in here, this, you know, really essentially the beginning of this story is the beginning of your story. The beginning of this story is the beginning of my story. It's the beginning of our story. And so we need to understand what's going on. Um, and uh, this, the beginning of the story tackles some of humanity's biggest questions. We want to know what God, what God is like. We want to know what am I for? What is a human being for? Why is it broken? Why is it so broken? Why do we look around in this world and there's, there's you know, so many things that make children laugh. And then there's, at the same time, there's a lot of children who are weeping and crying. And why in the world is the world like this? And if God was really on the job and if you really cared about it and if you really was God, then you know, why, why is it like this? Well, the beginning of the story really gives us the picture of why, why it's like this. The Bible has an explanation. And I'm convinced it's the explanation that holds the most water. It holds the, more, it holds the most truth. Um, and it gives us an accurate picture of how we actually, how we actually experience the world. So hey, here's the recap, all right? Genesis 1, 2, God creates. He creates. He creates the world. He calls it good. He calls it good. He separates light and dark. He does all this amazing stuff, and he creates out of chaos. He creates order. He creates, and then, the, the, you know, there's, there's some big themes here. It's God creates, and then it's the imago Dei is next. It's, it's, what, it's Latin for the image of God, that God creates all these things, and then he creates male and female. He makes humanity. And he creates them in his image, which is such a deep, deep topic. What does it mean for humans to be in his image? That God creates the animals, but God cre- and he makes the animals good, but he, doesn't, he makes human beings different than the animals. The only human beings get this divine sort of title that we are created in the image of God. And oh my gosh, that could mean so many things. But one of the things that we know for sure it means is because we know what job God gave the humans to do. He created him in his image, and then he asks for a partnership. He wants partners. Um, this is kind of the crazy thing about how what we see in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there. And what's cool about it is that God calls it good, but God doesn't call it perfect. That's interesting, isn't it? We usually think like the Garden of Eden, it's perfect. It's complete. Therefore, our job in the beginning in the Garden of Eden was just to find a hammock and get a Mai Tai and just relax and just enjoy, soak it in. But that's not the picture that we get. The scripture tells us that, no, it's, it's not perfect. It's not complete. It's good. But that God's pulling us into it and he wants us to partner with him. That we get to take it somewhere. We get to be kings and queens of creation. We get to, we get to partner with him. It's a really, really cool picture of what God is at, is, wants from us. He doesn't want slaves. He doesn't want just subjects. He wants human beings to be underneath him, but in a partnership, which is so incredible. And, uh, and then things, the, the, the point of Genesis 1 and 2, as you kind of step back from those two chapters, things are good. Just things are good. The Bible's word that it uses for it is shalom. It's just there's peace. Things are good. Uh, there's this shalom vertically, their relationship with God. There's this sh- shalom um, horizontally in their relationships with each other and with the animal kingdom and with all of creation. There's this peace that's permeating God's creation. And God says, and, and listen, th- there's one rule. There's just one rule. A lot of people think that our God is a God that just loves to create rules and just see if we can jump through them. But in this point, God calls everything good and there's just one rule. It's this, trust. Just trust me. Let me be God. Let me be God. I know you, you have a lot of questions that you don't understand yet. There's this tree. Listen, I would just need you to trust me. Don't eat from this tree. Let me be God. There's one rule. Things are good. So I'm going to read Genesis 3. I'm going to actually read you most of the chapter, whole chapter of Genesis 3. And guys, I've got I've to be disciplined because this chapter is packed full of such amazing, amazing stuff. 
I was telling my staff this last week that the, uh, Genesis 3 is kind of like a clown car. Like you, like you open up the door and it's like more stuff is coming out and more and more and more. And you're like, how do you all fit in there? This is like what this chapter is like. Um, chapter 2 ends with this line. It says, and they were naked and without shame. Things are good. <laughs> Things are good at this point. They're naked and without shame. And then Genesis 3 starts and here's what happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So let's pause right there. What's going on? Why is there this, what is this thing in the garden? And we have so many questions surrounding this. And it's good for you to have questions surrounding this because it's perplexing. Wait, God created it and it's good, but then there's this, there's this snake and it says, and it, you know, it's, it's like, and, and God made it. And so what is he doing here? I mean, there's just so many questions. And by the way, in case you think that the Bible is filled with lots of talking animals, kind of like Narnia, really there's only two talking animals in the scripture. There's one where a donkey talks, which I don't even have time to get into that because it's a little strange. And then it's Genesis 3, a ta- a, this talking serpent. And, you know, the Bible, here's what's hard, is the Bible is not interested in really answering all of our questions about what's going on here. And that is really frustrating for us. In fact, the Bible doesn't even necessarily give this serpent, this this entity, a name. You might think, wait a minute, it's Satan, right? Well, you know, what's interesting is like when, like, names like, any proper names that we have for this thing, whatever it is, Satan the devil, Lucifer. Lucifer's not in the Bible, by the way, just that name's not. S- Satan is in there, but it's always started with a the, so it's the Satan. It's, an, it's not a proper name, it's a title. It means the adversary. And the devil isn't a proper name either. The devil means it's a deceiver, it's the deceiver. Um, or Beelzebub, there's like one place in the Bible where it, where it uses that name. And Beelzebub literally means like Lord of the flies. It means like Lord of the dung pile is what that means. So any name that we have sort of in the scripture that we think is like the name for this, this entity, this thing, um, isn't actually a name. It's, a, it's, a, it's like it's, it's a function of what this thing is, but it doesn't, just, it doesn't even give this, this creature, this thing, the dignity of a name. The scripture doesn't. Um, and so that's frustrating for us because we want answers and we want an origin story, you know, about this thing. And so we, you know, we, people go through the Bible and try to like pick out like, oh, that's, that's an origin story of, of, of this thing. And that's an origin story, but I'm not convinced that the Bible really gives us a clear origin story of what this thing is. So we have all these different questions, um, and it's uncomfortable for, for us, but here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. Just from, just from these few verses, we know this, we know that whatever this thing is, it's created, Okay, it has a beginning and it has an end, and it's not equal to God. And the next thing that we know is it's, it's in rebellion against God, and it wants other people to be in rebellion against God too, because we know that misery loves company. And so, and so this, whatever this thing is, this, 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 this evil that's in the garden, it's in open rebellion against God. It wants to bring other people in it. And then here's the other thing we know. The other thing we know is that the strategy is subtle but effective. The strategy is very subtle but effective. Evil isn't going to show up in your bedroom with tights and a pitchfork and be like, oh, hey, listen to me, right? Red rum, red rum, right? No, it's not going to do that. That's not what evil does. It's not the strategy. It's way too obvious. 
we see that this strategy that, that, this, that this, this evil has, whatever this is, it's, it's subhuman, it's, 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 it's created, but it's trying to deceive humanity. There's this mysterious thing at work. Um, there's, there's this subtle, effective strategy. So you notice he does this. He's trying to get humanity to doubt God's goodness, to overestimate themselves and to underestimate the consequences. They're trying to, he's trying to twist God's words. And you can see it in the very, very first line, right? He says this. He says, uh, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you notice just like, do you see the subtle twist right there? Like, remember what God said. He says, you can eat from all the trees in the garden. I mean, look, all of them are just, just not this one. And do you see the twist? Did God really say that you can't eat from all the trees? Like, oh my gosh, what a prude he is. He's just trying to make rules. You see, he's trying to twist it from the very beginning. Um, and notice, notice uh, the, the passage that Olivia read, you know, where, where Jesus, he comes out of the water and he hears this voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes out into the wilderness and here's this, here's this thing again. And you notice the twist. He says, if you're the son of God, why don't you do this? Oh, you see, it's the same twist, just trying to doubt God's goodness, trying to get him to doubt the, you know, his identity. It's subtle but effective. Um, so this tells us something really significant, by the way, about evil in our world. That evil in our world is a result, certainly, of our bad decisions, of our bad behavior, of things that we do. But, but it's not just that. There's more to that. There's something even deeper. There's something underneath it all. There's this entity, this created thing, that's subhuman and there's the, it's mysterious and that work is, it, and it's working sort of in our world to trick us, to deceive us, to have us turn away from the Lord. I'll move on. This is verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God, uh, but God did say that you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Side note, we didn't read this part, but God said you can eat from all the trees in the garden, but not this one. God never said earlier that you couldn't touch the tree. As far as we know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, we just, you kind of have to read a little bit into the text. But you know what I see here? I see from the very beginning, page three of the Bible, here we have Satan trying to twist God's words and humans adding to God's words things that he never said. This is, the pro this is a problem. This is a problem. It still continues. Both of those things, and here we have it at the very, very beginning, human beings adding to what God has said that he never said, which is a huge problem still in our world today. We look back and we see the Crusades where people were saying, hey, God wants you to go murder the infidels, and if you do, you get a straight ticket to heaven. And God's looking down at that whole thing and saying, I never said that. He goes on, verse 4. The serpent says, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Uh, so many things here. He's undermining God's authority. He wants them to overestimate our abilities and underestimate the consequences um, of us diso uh, disobeying the Lord. He, he wants us to question God's goodness. Um, he, you know, he says, hey, God knows that if you become enlightened, then you'll be like him. And he doesn't want that because he wants to wear the pants, you know? It's kind of like he doesn't want you to realize that you can be like him. It's like that moment in the Truman Show where Truman rec knows that he's like in, he's being uh, on a television show and he's like, he's like, he recognizes, he's like, oh no. 
Like I've been on a television show the whole time. And he goes and he realizes that like, I don't need this. I don't have to live here. I don't have to live sort of like submitted to this like, to this, this authority over me. I can be free. And Satan wants us to do the same thing. He promises freedom on the other side of the fence, out from God's authority. And all of those tricks are just still common today in, in our lives. It's just, it's, it's, there's common twists that we believe. You know, Satan says, you know, your marriage is hard, but if you got married to somebody else, it won't be that it won't be as hard you should leave you should find somebody new um sex outside of marriage that's a dumb rule I mean like no sex outside of marriage that's like that's so that's like leave it to beaver that was like the 50s like you don't want to be on the wrong side of history on this one like like rules on sexual ethics like come on God's like such a prude listen to your parents you don't have to they don't know anything you know more than they do Forgive that person. Don't forgive that person. If you forgive that person, you'll give up your power. And then they'll like be in control. And you don't want to give up your power in the relationship. So stay offended and don't forgive. You can keep the power. Just the same twist, the same twist, the same twist over and over again in all sorts of different ways. I'll move on. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We'll get back to this in a, in a second. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here's what we see. We see a lot of, we start to see God's creation starting to get fractured. This relationship that God wanted to have with partners in part, a partnership with humanity, now there's this, um, there's the shalom is missing now. They, 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 they look at each other uh, laterally and they say, now I don't know if I can trust you. So they sew fig leaves together. They're, you know, they say, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. And now they're hiding from God. They're not only hiding from each other, they're hiding from the Lord. And they, you know, they feel like, man, you know, is, is he going to be angry at us? And I don't know, the, the relationship is fractured. What I love about this is that God knows all this stuff. He's not dumb, but God is doing what he does always. And he just, he, he goes and tries to find them. He pursues them. He wants dialogue with them. He wants a relationship with them. So we see God in the garden saying, hey, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. But Adam and Eve are hiding. But the Lord God said to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What I love about this is God knows, but you see what he's doing? He's, 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 he, has, he wants conversation. He wants dialogue. I mean, this is like what I do with my kids where I could just swoop in and just, you know, like, you know, make decisions, but I want to come in and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen. I'm going to ask probing questions. This is what God is doing with humanity because he cares. He cares so much. And then the man said, you know, God says, did you eat, what did you eat from this tree? And the man said, verse 12, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Not only do we see a lot of hiding now, but we see a lot of blaming, blame shifting. It's embarrassing. Because it's just the guy, you know, it's, oh, it's the woman's fault. The, girl, the woman is like, it's the devil's fault, you know. But it, nothing changes. We're, we as human beings still, we just, we refuse. It's so hard for us to accept responsibility. And we love finding scapegoats, don't we? We love it. 
It's not, you know, it's like it's her fault, it's his fault, it's the devil's fault, it's Obama's fault, it's Trump's fault, it's those immigrants' fault, you know, like it's, we, we'll always find just somebody to just say like, if this person were to change, then I'd be fine. You know, anybody in a marriage, anybody do this? Like, hey, if my spouse would just change, oh, then things would be good around here, you know? And we just tend to do that to it. If my kids would just, oh, I'd be fine. And we just think that, you know, the biggest problems are always out there, but never are the, our deepest problems in here. And this is why you'll never go to like a protest anywhere and see somebody holding a sign with an arrow pointing down saying, I am the problem. <laughs> you'll never see it. Because just our human nature, we want to find somebody to blame. And here's, what, here's here the, the scriptures just reading our mail here, just t- telling us just things about ourselves that we already know. We have a propensity to do all this. And then the next part is really interesting. Um, it's, you know, it's, theologians call it the, the curses. There are these things that happen. But the, uh, being cursed for these decisions that they've made, it's, it's, it's tough language because it makes it sound like it's God, punish, God punishing us, God punishing creation. I mean, you could, you could say that that's what he's doing, but also I, I read something this week that helped me out with this. Uh, one, one commentator said, you know, it's a little bit like when a fish jumps out of the water, like into a boat or onto a dock, and the fish is flopping back and forth. The fish wasn't made to live outside of the water. It's, it's struggling. It's, it's suffering. Um, but, and, and, you know, and you could say that the fish is being punished for jumping out of the water, you could say it that way, but it would be weird to say it that way. Really, the fish is experiencing consequences for jumping out of the water. The fish wasn't made to live there. Uh, you could say that the fish is being cursed for jumping out of the water. You could kind of use that language. And so here's what God is, I mean, here's what happens in this whole next section is there's consequences for humans saying, you know what, God, we don't need you. We want to be in control. And so these things are happening, and I'm not going to read it all, but I'll, I'll, I'll read some. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, so it starts with the serpent. He says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says this fascinating phrase that we're going to get back to. He says, and I will put enmity, that's kind of like strife. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the, to the snake now, remember? He says, I'm going to put this, like, this tension between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, this offspring of the woman, he, the seed of the woman, that he will crush your head, but you, snake, will strike his heel. Guys, whole, whole volumes have been written on that, on that line. <laughs> it is rich and deep. But what we need to know for the purposes of this morning is that this really sets up the main plot conflict in, this, in the biblical story. This is setting up the, 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 the plot for the whole rest of this amazing story. We'll come back to it in a second. The man and the woman have consequences. Um, it, there's strife in relationships. There's strife in work. There's toil. There's frustration. Things that were supposed to be like filled with shalom now are, are filled with chaos. And then in verse 21, I'll skip to verse 21. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like, like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, you know, gosh, we could talk about all this stuff a ton, but this is just an interesting part. Like this is God's grace. Things have fractured and broken. And so God's like, listen, I, we don't want it to stay this way. 
I don't want it to stay this way. There's got to be a plan out of it. So they can't be in the garden anymore. So the Lord God banished, uh, banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, this part's a little strange. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a, a cherubim. Now this is sort of one of these Bible characters, these like sort of strange you know, you read other places in the Bible, like, oh, is that an angel? Like, uh, what's a cherubim? You, please don't think cherub. Like, don't think ba- naked baby with wings, with a harp, all right? Don't. Because God is not d- dumb enough to guard the Garden of Eden with a naked baby with a harp, all right? A cher- well, we don't know that much about what a cherubim is, but we know it's probably uh, terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Uh, an, a, a, a spiritual being, an angelic being. And we know that this cherubim is there. And what does the cherubim have? A flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's, that's the, basically the whole chapter of Genesis 3. Um, God creates all things good. But what we see here, because, and if you were here last week, we talked about how the reason why we experience so much frustration in our world is because God created this kingdom, but we have created another kingdom, an alternate kingdom, where we feel like that we can rule and reign. And when we feel like we can rule and reign in our world, things don't go well. And God, the king, is going to come one day, going to fix, make all things right again. His, his kingdom is going to come. And what we get to do is we get to participate in his kingdom, not in the kingdom that we've created. But we see from the very beginning that Adam and Eve, they create this, humanity creates this alternate kingdom where instead of shalom, there's chaos. Things are turned upside down. Real quickly, there's relational chaos. Um, there's vocational chaos. There's physical chaos. There's environmental chaos. There used to be this harmony with creation, but now they're at odds with it. There's spiritual chaos between their relationship with God. There's psychological chaos. They're in denial. They're blame shifting. When they're separated from God, then they don't even know who they are anymore. Um, There's social chaos. They're suspicious of one another. All of that is taking place. And here's an irony here. And I was actually, I've preached on this passage lots of times and this this little thing here was, was really new for me and helpful for me. But you notice that when humans are made, they're made in the image of God and they've got this dignity that, that isn't bestowed upon the animals. That the animals are created good too, but humans ha- have this vocation to rule over the animals. But then what you see in the very beginning is there's this, this sneaky animal, this snake in the garden. And he wants to convince them that they can be their own gods and therefore ascend even higher, even above the animals. But what actually happens is the opposite takes place. When human beings try to be more than what God created them to be, when they don't want to submit under his authority, they, it, they, we, we think that we're becoming better. But actually, we kind of um, de- like decreation happens and we end up, we end up acting like animals. We end up acting like animals. And you see it. There's this theme. Notice that what, what does God do when he sends them out of the garden? He clothes them in what? Animal skins. Um, the very next story is Cain and Abel. And we know what happens in that story. Cain acts like an animal, kills Abel. And there's even this line that says that sin is crouching on this, the doorstep like a lion. That sin is starting to be depicted as this animalistic thing that comes in to, uh, to humanity. And then uh, just a little bit later, there's this character that you've heard of, Noah. What's so interesting about that is like, this is sort of like a, 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 re- a try for a reboot. Notice that no- Noah has like, um, <laughs> uh, like dominion over the animals like God created us to have. 
Um, it's not just, it doesn't make for just really fun kid stories. It's actually like this really cool, like a thing that's happening where, where God's trying to restore humanity above the animals again, just like they were created. To not be animals, but to be above them. Noah's in this context where everybody's acting like animals, but God says, Noah, I want you to be different. I want you to be in dominion over the animals. Then, you know, the ark happens, you know, the, the, uh, the flood happens, and then they land. And then guess how long it takes for Noah to start acting like an animal? like a day. <laughs> There's this really seedy Jerry Springer moment that I encourage you to read on your own um, where Noah gets drunk and shady things happen in a tent and you can read it on your own. But hum humans, we just, we just go right back to acting like animals, to acting like animals. And then later on, we have Pharaoh. Pharaoh shows up and Pharaoh is animalistic and he's treating the Israelite people like they're animals. And so God calls Noah, and remember this moment of the burning bush? Moses is, is uh, did I say Noah again? I meant Moses, sorry. You know what I mean. Moses, let my people go. Moses, all right? Moses is standing um, at the burning bush, and remember what God says, like, take off your sandals, because this is holy ground. And then there's this funny thing. God says, hey, throw down your staff, and the staff will become a, becomes a snake. This is kind of this crazy thing. The staff, the Bible's so weird, guys. It's so interesting. The staff becomes a snake, and then God wants Moses to grab the, the, the tail of the snake. Now, you might, you know, you read that on your own, and you're like, oh, that's kind of like a cool magic trick that God wanted Moses to, like, do to show, to give Moses confidence. But you, do you see what's happening here? God is trying another reboot, reboot with Moses. Moses, I want you to have dominion. I want you to have dominion over, over animals. I want you to have dominion over the snake. It's like saying something really profound here. So Moses is going to go like kind of being this new human that we need to be. And, you know, let my people go, you know, and everything happens. And then how long do the good times last? Not long. The Israelites just start treating each other like animals. They start treating neighboring countries like animals. And around and around and around and around it goes. We just, we can't defeat the snake. We, we just end up when, you know, it's ironic, isn't it? That when, we, that, when we, that when we try to be more than we are, we actually become more like animals. But when we live in the place of submission unto the Lord like he created us to, that's when we become elevated and become kings and queens of creation it's actually such an ironic thing we just get it backwards all the time and no human has gotten it right and the old testament leaves it hanging with this question of we need a new kind of human around here because we just can't do it and when you look at the news and when i look at the news don't you think the same thing sometimes i do we just turn on the news and it's another school shooting it's just more racism, more violence, more strong eating the weak, more, and you know what that is, strong eating the weak? It's, it's animalistic. It's us just acting like animals over and over again. And it frustrates us. And our culture says, you know how we get out of this? We just need to do the next right thing. We need to pay it forward. And I think you should do the next right thing, and I think you should pay it forward. <laughs> but... The, the answer that, we, that our culture gives us, the best answer that our culture has is just be nice and be kind. And guys, that's, that's, I want you to be nice and kind, but that message will never go deep enough. It won't. No amount of bumper stickers, no amount of hashtags are gonna transform humanity. We need somebody to come and, and be the human that we can't. Aha. And then we reach the New Testament. And notice that I had Olivia read 
Matthew, um, because it's so fascinating what happens in the desert where Jesus has been baptized. There's this voice that says, you're my son, whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes out right away. And you know what Jesus is doing out there? He's, he's the new Adam. This is another reboot, like, like, God, like, like Moses could have been, and like, like, like Noah could have been, and like Moses could have been, like Daniel could have been, like David could have been, but none of them could do it. And here Jesus, and he's the new Adam, and he is going to go up against the test from the serpent again. Um, remember Genesis 3.15. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his, teal, his heel. Uh, theologians call this the proto-evangelion. It's the first proclamation of the gospel all the way back in Genesis 3. That God is saying, listen, Satan, you're going to, you know, you're, you know, deceiver, adversary, whatever your name is, serpent. Um, you're going you're gonna to work really hard to try to get people to join your team. But someone's going to come. There's going to be a snake crusher that comes. And when he comes, he will deal with you ultimately. He will pass the test that humans couldn't pass. And he won't just pass the test, but he's actually going to destroy you but not without you hurting him first. And it's this like prophetic thing that's just left hanging. Like, what are we supposed to do with this now? Like, who, this, the woman and the, you know, but here comes Jesus stepping onto the scene. You know what Jesus called himself? His favorite name for himself was the son of man. And Jesus is making a reference to this passage right here that he is the seed of the woman. He's the one that's gonna come and do the thing that we, none of us can do, that no hashtag can do, that no, you know, like, you know, ad campaign can do in our world. Jesus is going to be the only one that can do it. And notice what he does. He goes and he's tempted in the wilderness. And, you know, and notice what, what, what this deceiver is trying to do. It's the same thing as Genesis 3. If you're the son of God, he's trying to doubt God's goodness. He's trying to doubt God's, God's you know, uh, uh, identity over Jesus' life. He's trying, to, he's trying to get Jesus to think, you know, Satan's trying to do this. He's trying to say, if you really were the son of God, you wouldn't be out here starving in the desert. I mean, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be starving. You'd be feasting. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be like, people wouldn't be like leaving you left and right. You'd be the most popular person ever. If God really loved you, you wouldn't get cancer. If God really loved you, like you wouldn't go through something hard in your life. I mean, if God really loved you, I mean, he wouldn't want you to like not follow your feelings and not follow your dreams and not just follow, you know, wherever your desires take you. He, you know, like if God really loved you, he'd want you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. If God really loved you, then, you know, then you'd have all sorts of blessings. And if you're not experiencing those things, then God either must not exist or he must not like you. He must be punishing you. Maybe God's punishing you, Jesus. Jesus, why don't you use your power, not for other people, but why don't you use your power to give yourself some bread? Why don't you use your power to make everybody think well of you? Why don't you use your power to get more stuff and accumulate more things? That's what power is for, Jesus. You use it to be in charge. You use it to push other people down so that you can be lifted up, Jesus. Why don't you use your power like that? And it's the same temptation that he wanted Adam and Eve to fall for in the garden. And do you know what Jesus says? No. In fact, he says, get out of here, Satan. Get out. Adversary, deceiver, get out. 
You know Jesus only says that one other time to some, do you know who, do you know who Jesus says that to? There's one other person that Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. It's Peter. And you remember what Peter was doing? Jesus was talking to his disciples and he was saying, guys, here's how it's going to go down. Is I'm going to, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be on trial and I'm going to die on a cross. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. He was very clear. <laughs> and Peter, I love that Peter pulls Jesus, hey, Jesus, come here. You know, Peter pulls Jesus and he's like, wow, oh, Jesus, you don't, don't, talk, don't talk like that. You know, like, I know that sounds like all nice and humble, but Jesus, like, um, that's, that's not how you become king in this world. That's not how you do it, Jesus. You don't, like, you don't die on a cross. Like, that. no, you're the Messiah, remember? Like, maybe he's giving him a pep talk. Like, don't be so down on yourself, Jesus. Like, you know, you're, you're the Messiah. No, you're, we're gonna go, we're gonna kick out these Romans. Like, don't talk like that, Jesus. That's a little bit depressing. You're not gonna die. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get out of here, Satan. Because Jesus is doing the thing that, that we so desperate, our world needs, but it's so hard for us to do. Jesus says, I refuse to use power to my own advantage. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna use all the power that I have to sacrificially serve and suffer for others. That's what I'm gonna do. That's what power's for. That's why God gave Adam and Eve this ability to be partners because he wanted them to use their power to bless and to serve, not to take control for their own purposes and for their own glory. And when we do that, we mess things up. And so Jesus did that for us, but it cost him. Dan, why don't you come, come back up here, because I'm going to kind of close here. Um, and I just want us to respond and sing a song. But I have a question for you today, because it really, this isn't just, you know, theological interesting stuff from Genesis 3. This, uh, this matters. This matters for you and your life, and this matters for me. Because what Jesus does on the cross is... He fulfills this thing where he's going to crush Satan's head, but Satan's going to strike his heel. Satan deals a blow to Jesus. And here's what happens on the cross. All of our animalistic garbage, all of the ways that we hurt each other in our world because we just, we just act like animals towards each other, all of that is going to come crushing down on Jesus. When Jesus is hanging from a cross, he's experiencing all that, all that this serpent can do. He's, all, of the, all of the ramifications, all of the chaos that human beings have experienced, all of that is gonna come crashing down on Jesus. Remember, there's a cherubim that's guarding the way back to, back to the place of life, but there's a flaming sword. If, if we're gonna get back to the garden, somebody's gotta go under the sword. And Jesus goes under the sword for us, for you and for me in this radical, incredible act of sacrificial love and forgiveness. God forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus not only passed the test for you and for me so that we could be a new kind of human like him, but also he took everything that the serpent could give. The only weapon that the serpent has is death and the threat of death. And on that day, all of it got piled all onto Jesus. The serpent did the best that they could and Jesus came out victorious. You will not crush me because I'm gonna defeat death. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. So the question before us today, just as we close, is Jesus is walking in the garden and he's calling out your name. 
Are you hiding from him? Are you afraid of what he'll say? Are you worried that he's gonna wag his finger at you? Are you worried that he's gonna like heap some punishments on you because of things that you've done or ways that you've thought about him or about yourself? Are you worried about that? Please, I, I want you to hear, don't be worried about that. He loves you. He's walking in the garden because he just wants to call out your name and say, come home, come home. Have you noticed things in your life where you've taken the fruit from the tree and maybe today you need to kind of just proverbially just in your own heart and in your own, in your own life, you just need to put the fruit back on the tree. You just need to say, God, I, I have such a hard time trusting you, but Lord, in this moment, will you just reach down so deep, give me this kind of heart that wants to trust you. And the way that you get that kind of heart is when you see Jesus on the cross for you, taking everything that this serpent can deal out he bore it for you. He passed the test for you in the garden so that you could be new, so that you could be made new, so you could get a new heart, so that he could replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, so that you could follow him and be living in this new kind of humanity that he wants us to live in. Do you have the courage to do that today? Are you acting like an animal in some place in your life? You're holding on to unforgiveness. You're holding on to a grudge. You're treating somebody like that because you just, you just there's something in you that feels like you got to do it. Maybe you need to take on the Imago Dei again in a fresh way today. You're created in the image of God. We get to live a new way because of Jesus.